0: Hello and welcome to Employment Talk. We're here to discuss the HR issues affecting you and keep you up to date with the latest employment law matters. I'm Glenn Hayes, Head of Employment at Erwin Mitchell.
1: And I'm Jo Mosley, and I'm a support lawyer here and I keep a keen eye on employment law developments and write our newsletters and blogs.
0: So Jo, I hear we've got some feedback from our listeners. Please tell me it's good news after the menopause talk we did last time.
1: Well, actually, I did get some feedback on that particular one as well, but I'll probably tell you that in um, in private. But yes, it is good news, very good news. Some of our listeners now have been suggesting topics for us to All right, cover. That's good. Yeah, it is good. So this time they have suggested that we talk about how employers should manage ill health and particularly long term conditions.
0: A very topical issue at the minute um yeah we, we are seeing quite a number of inquiries and quite an increase in inquiries on the on this topic so there's quite a lot of anecdotal issue that uh, evidence sorry that people are sort of there's an increase in numbers of people suffering from ill health so i don't know whether there are any official stats to support that job but it's certainly something that we're seeing
1: yeah i'm not surprised yeah there are there are quite a lot of stats actually that are supporting that i think it was just before christmas the ons published data that suggested that 2.5 million people are now out of work due to long-term health problems, and they call them economically inactive. And that had jumped by half a million since the outset of COVID. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing so many job vacancies. The highest rates are in those people that are aged between 50 and 64 years old. But there's a Decent increase, actually, in the rates in younger people, too. There seems to be a lot of problems with mental ill health, in particular with some of our younger age groups.
0: Well, it's quite big numbers. Yeah. So do we know what these people are suffering from? Because it just used to be bad backs.
1: Yeah, it did, didn't it, a few years ago. Everyone used to sort of complain about bad backs, and I'm sure they haven't gone away but there's less concrete data about the the particular conditions people are suffering from. Um, I had a quick look to see what I could find about this in preparation for this podcast. And there was a decent amount of evidence that suggested that there's still a problem with people's backs and neck conditions. And that is largely associated with people that are working from home. And that may well be a sort of hangover, I guess, from COVID working conditions in that, you know, obviously when, COVID started and we all had to lock down people just had to make do really with what they had to hand so they may not have had a um, you know a proper desk they may not have had a proper seat but I would have expected employers to have sort of remedied that situation now certainly for people that are continuing to work from home but whether that's caused sort of long-term issues for people I, I don't know I mean certainly we've got record NHS waiting lists at the moment. So it's possible that people develop conditions, you know, those type of conditions during COVID and are still waiting to be seen um, for help.
0: But It's quite interesting, Joel, because um, I've actually been asked to speak at a well-being conference in March uh, at the NEC and um, the, the topic that I've been asked to speak on, and it's the topic that they chose rather than me, was about The sort of the issues about people working from home and there's a lot of health professionals at that um, at that conference and i was talking to a guy the other day who runs a a musculoskeletal company so they go into uh, organizations and look at uh, reducing people's levels of absence by making sure they're properly set up for example and they're not sort of hunched over or whatever and the Mm. the big issue he was telling me was now that whilst people were set up in the workplace they're obviously now set up from home as well and there's a mixture and the problem is that when you go into your workplace now whereas before you sat at the same desk you might have even had a special chair to sit in or um, Mm and you had equipment that was designed for you specifically now you just go to any desk where you can you probably have to book it plonk yourself down there and you probably sit in not an ideal uh, position and then the next day you sit at home and do something completely different and and obviously it doesn't take a, a you know a, a, a medical degree to work out what that's likely to do for your body so no. um, I do think that that is causing people some issues with backs and necks and that's I mean that's even excluding the people who are scrunched over with laptops balanced on the knees or whatever you mm-hmm. know which you know obviously dangerous there but and um, it's it's quite a, an obligation now I think on employers to try and check that people are set up at home properly as well as in the workplace.
1: Oh, absolutely. I remember years ago, because I've been doing Pilates probably for 20 years now, and that was mainly to develop better posture, because, you know, hunched over um, a typewriter or a computer now as it is um, all day, I was developing really bad pain in my um, my upper back. So I started Pilates, and it's sort of more or less sorted it, but there was an image there on the wall, and I remember it to this day. And it was a, um, an x-ray of a skeleton I think they were watching television, but they were on a sofa, they were slouched down, their head was projected forward and they were holding a TV changer. And the caption was something like spinal injury at naught miles an hour. Oh, right. I, and I just thought You yeah. are, you you are know, talking
0: to a guy that's just had a hip replacement mind. So I'm probably the least <laughs> flexible man on the planet and probably a case study for some of this stuff.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> what about the public sector, Joe? Is there anything specific to them that we need to be alarmed about?
1: Well, I think a lot of, I mean, obviously we're seeing a lot of strike action, aren't we in the public sector at the moment, and it isn't just about money so we're seeing nurses and teachers and people and professionals like that that are all complaining about burnout and stress and I think we can certainly see it can't we in our um, NHS I yeah. don't have children at school anymore so I'm not so, not so sort of clued into teachers but you know there's this is sort of general feeling now that people are working harder and longer and getting iller as a result and there's also the other thing that I found out was that the, for the people that aren't in work, but are of working age, so this sort of economically inactive group, a quarter of them have long COVID. That's a lot of people, well, isn't well,
0: it? Is that? Yeah. I, I mean, if, I think long COVID is a very really difficult one, isn't it? Because it seems to me there is no real formal diagnosis of it. You know, people sort of self-diagnose whether they've got it or not, and then, you know, but it, it clearly does exist, and there's you know, we've, you know, I've got a person in my team that suffered from COVID really badly. And I, I'm sure she's had long COVID as a result of it because, you know, it's not something that you just shake off, really. Um,
1: no. And it seems to be really intermittent as well, doesn't it? So that you're not necessarily poorly all the time, yeah. but you can relapse almost just like that.
0: But, the, but I think it's the draining effect on the body that is is quite, and, and if you think about that in the context of the workforce, what are we going to see? We're going to see things like performance dip, we're going to see absence yeah. levels increase, yeah. you know, and, and employers will have to try and grapple with that. And it's a, it's a very, very difficult one because it's not something that you can see. It's a bit like mental illness, mm. really difficult to manage, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that leads us very nicely on to the focus of today. So, um, as I've said, I think it would be a really good opportunity for us to talk about long-term ill health, as it's often, as you say, much more difficult to manage, and that's where the risk of discrimination claims is more likely. So I thought we could start, Glenn, by explaining at what point in in someone's medical problem, if you like, does that issue become a, a disability in the context of employment law?
0: Okay, well, let's um, let's start with the legal definition of disability. Then, so um, a disability is broken down into a number of different parts. So, you you have to have either a physical or mental impairment, and a physical ones generally quite easy to 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 spot. So, bad backs, bad knees, you know, broken limbs, whatever. And but obviously, there's a mental impairment as well, which is quite difficult to 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 diagnose sometimes. Mm-hmm. So. That that impairment has to have what we call a substantial and long term adverse effect on a person's ability to carry out normal daily activities. Okay. So it's um, it's a sort of number of strands to that test, really.
1: So shall we look at those in a bit more detail then? Yeah. So I think the first part, the physical or mental impair- impairment, is pretty self-explanatory. But I think where our listeners get into a little more difficulty is understanding what is meant by substantial and long term. And what I wanted to ask you is that, is there a point in time which tips an illness or condition into something that is long term?
0: Well, the short answer to that is no. So long term is, is defined as has lasted or is likely to last more than 12 months. So, for example, if I break my leg and I get it put in a cast, and after uh, three months or whatever, it's all fixed, okay, inverted commas. Then um, I'm not going to be covered by the uh, by the Equality Act and that definition because my illness will not be a long-term condition, okay. But if, for example, I have a condition that is likely to take some time to heal, okay, or or doesn't heal for example take for example things like um, epilepsy or um, worse still sort of cancer and there's a chance of it recurring then clearly that is likely to last 12 months or more and will be covered by the act mm-hmm. and you've got to take into you've got to discount the effective treatment mm-hmm. so for example if I'm a if I suffer from diabetes okay if I stop taking and I'm insulin dependent I stop taking my my insulin what happens well Worst case scenario, I I die effectively. So you've got to look at what the position is without that treatment uh, in the background.
1: Yep, okay. And what about um, substantial? What's meant by that?
0: So bizarrely, substantial is defined as not minor or trivial. So you've got to really look at what the the claimant can do compared with what they're not able to do without the impairment. Mm -hmm. So let me give you some examples. He probably explains them better. Yeah. So there's there's case law where a woman with severe ectopic eczema who needed to spend an hour every day applying cream and waiting for it to sink in before it could dry, that was deemed to be a substantial impairment. Mm-hmm. And employees had a severe road ac- traffic accident and suffered repeated migraines that affect sleep and concentration, again that's a substantial impairment. So it's looking at the effect on those day-to-day activities, yeah. and an employee with a bad back that improves within a year but meant that they couldn't lift heavy loads well that's not going to be a substantial impairment okay because it's not going to be sufficiently serious enough in those circumstances in order to meet that test and ironically I've got a case on at the minute which is precisely that point so it's an individual with a, a shoulder injury and the employer is defending the claim for, uh, for alleged failure to make reasonable adjustments and they're saying well actually it's not a long-term condition because you know after a while it's sort of the, the position improved so it wasn't substantial enough to be a disability so you know each case has got to be looked at quite carefully and on the merits really
1: mm. I, was, I was going to ask you about that because i mean generally it boils down doesn't it to having to look at each case on its merits and clients just don't like that messaging do they they want certainty yes it's going to be a disability or no it's not when never do lawyers either to be fair and i can see why clients get
0: frustrated because when we're advising people on this type of area and the centres, us is he likely to be covered by, uh, is he or she likely to be covered by the Equality Act? It becomes quite difficult because it it's it's actually a legal question, not a medical one, but it's a legal mm-hmm. question that's aided by medical evidence. Yeah. So, for example, you know, somebody might say to me, "Well, if Joe Blogs has gone off sick and he's told us that he's got migraines or he's suffering from uh, depression or whatever." And you've you've got to look at these things and try and work out without the benefit of hindsight most of the time, whether or not it's going to be sufficiently serious to meet that test. So trying to work out the effect on the individual and what they can and can't do is quite difficult. So we can can obviously see what they can do or can't do within the workplace, but how do we know whether they've got difficulties sleeping at night or whether they struggle to get themselves dressed in the morning or whatever other than by asking them and obviously we're relying upon data from the employee rather than stuff that we can see necessarily ourselves so it, it is a really tricky area where there isn't a great deal of certainty to be honest.
1: Mm. I was actually going to ask you about um, day-to-day activities and you've touched upon um, one of the points I was going to raise and that was You know, when we're talking about someone's inability to do normal day to day activities, does that just relate to what they can do or can't do at work or is it more general than that?
0: No, it's both. So there's, you know, um, it's in the context of work and outside work. So, for example, in work, it might be the ability to sit exams for promotion, might be the inability to type, might be the inability to lift, the ability to concentrate. You know, people might might fall asleep or get drowsy or whatever. Mm outside work it could be things like difficulty sleeping the inability to shop you know walk you know distances other than short ones for example traveling on public transport so it's a whole raft of things there is a there is a a a guidance code of conduct document that is quite helpful but it is quite it is quite tricky and i think you do have to make a judgment call and i think if you're an employer and you're trying to work out whether somebody's disabled or not i think you have to think through what the consequences are so you know, if you can make adjustments anyway, why wouldn't you make them? So, you know, it might help your employee get back to work. I think the real sticking point, though, becomes as to whether or not you can take action and potentially dismiss somebody, for example, where the area is fraught with danger if you don't go through that adjustment piece. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think What surprises people sometimes is how widely interpreted it is. I mean, you mentioned the ability to sit exams, for example, for a promotion. I don't think many people would see that, would they, as a day-to-day activity? No. You know, we've we've got case law now, haven't we, about that that those types of activities, and the you know the tribunals have been very clear that yeah, you may not be doing it day in day out, but it is a, a normal activity in relation to the work that you do, and wanting to promote through the be promoted through the ranks, for example.
0: Yeah, it, it's it's really hard. Um, the the way I always uh, explain it to clients is that if you're if you're considering reasonable adjustments, okay, the clues in the title, to an extent, in the as far as the adjustment has to be reasonable to alleviate the disadvantage that somebody suffers, yeah. and it's a bit like, is that can you make adaptations to somebody's job in order to keep them into work, okay, and and it might not be one thing that enables them them to stay at work, so you might have to make five or six adjustments, and quite often the issue that's thrown back is, well, it affects everybody else in the workplace, well. To a certain extent with disability discrimination so what it's it it is it is putting somebody in a sort of favorable inverted commas position compared to others and yeah but employers struggle with that in my view and it's Mm. it's particularly troublesome i think and this is where we've seen a real rise in activity in the mental impairment section
1: yeah can i take you back just briefly um you mentioned a little while ago about Medical treatment. So you use diabetes as an example, and saying that if if you're insulin um, dependent, then you sort of disregard the effect of that. I'm I'm wanted to ask you about maybe less severe conditions, and I put that in inverted commas. So we talked last week about menopause. No, we're
0: not Um, going on to that again, surely.
1: (laughs) Well, it's it's my you know it's my I came through it (laughs) unscathed. Just about, yeah. Um. So in relation to menopause, obviously for lots of women, there is an option of taking HRT Um, and for many women that will alleviate certainly the most extreme symptoms. In some cases, it will um, it will alleviate all of them. But not everybody wants to take HRT, for example. And my question to you is if. If, as a menopausal woman, um, I choose not to take HRT and I become a complete ratbag, my sleep starts um, to be disrupted again, as it would. Um, I can't concentrate at work. I lose my words more often than, than I already do. Um, does that mean that because I'm not taking a, um, a medicine that would help me, my my symptoms wouldn't be treated as a disability?
0: No. So it, the question of treatment is an issue for the employee. Yeah, I do, I do think it's one that employers struggle to get their heads around. And it often arises, for example, in things like people who are, you know, chronically obese and things like that. Because, you know, for example, I go to the gym three or four times a week or whatever. And I, I, I struggle um, with obesity because I think, well, you know, can't, well, can't you just do something, do some exercise or whatever? But it's it's a personal choice. And some people can't do exercise you know so if you don't want to take the hr treatment that's a matter for you now what it might mean for the employer is that you or the employees you might not be helping yourself to stay in work because employers are only only have to make reasonable adjustments and you know but it, it can't force you to have that particular course of treatment
1: so it's not a reasonable adjustment for you to say to me joe you've got to take hrt
0: no the, yeah. the reasonable adjustment is on the employer to, to take steps, not not to force the employee to take steps.
1: Yeah. OK. So before we move on, then, can you explain what conditions that are treated as dis- disabilities without having to meet these individual tests?
0: Yes. So there are certain things that are automatically co- covered from the point of um, diagnosis, really. So things like cancer, even if it's minor and treated really quickly, Mm-hmm. you are covered under the Equality Act and considered to be disabled. Um, progressive conditions like uh, MS will be another good example. Uh, HIV, so these can differ in severity clearly and at certain times of that cycle you may well be, so for example with MS you, you know, at the start you may, if it wasn't automatically covered, you might not meet that test of, of substantial, but you are covered from the point of diagnosis so it is a progressive condition it's going to get worse unfortunately blindness and severe sight impairments another one or partial uh, sight was another one so there are a few things like that that are covered automatically and there is a definitive list
1: yeah okay thank you what about long COVID? we mentioned long COVID at the start is that a disability
0: well it might be so again as i say it depends on the severity of it really so um, you know, you might have people who are mildly affected by it, breathless, you know, you know, whatever, tired, mm-hmm. find it difficult to concentrate, but it, it might not be severe enough to meet the legal definition. Um, equally, it could be a few months rather than over, likely to last more than 12 months. So a really yeah. difficult one, I'm afraid. So can I duck that and say it's not automatically covered, but it might be.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, we have started to see a few cases about long COVID. There was one in the summer last year that we covered um, in one of our newsletters, and that was about a caretaker who developed COVID and was suffering from fatigue in particular months later. And the tribunal in that in his case did find that he had a disability. I mean, in his case, he couldn't do normal chores around the house. He had to rest after walking, showering and getting dressed. He was unable to walk very far without becoming exhausted and he would drift off when reading or watching the television. So he was signed off work, but he did start to get better and he was expected that he would be able to return on a phased basis. But at the point where he was due to come back, he relapsed and he was actually dismissed eight and a half months after developing COVID. So within the 12-month period, you know, we're talking about long-term here. And the argument that they had before the tribunal in that case was, was it long-term? Because he'd been dismissed at the, you know, eight and a half months after catching COVID. They argued that actually his condition wouldn't have lasted longer than 12 months. Yeah. But in that case, they looked at the, um, you know, the medical evidence that they had and they just said his progress was uncertain. And in those circumstances, you know they didn't know and the the employers actually accepted that they didn't know when he would be able to return to work so they said on that basis then you know the 12-month test was was met yeah but i think we're likely to see many more cases like this given the huge numbers of people that are still suffering from long covid
0: it does just sure that the whole area is surrounded in uncertainty and the problem is the consequences of getting it wrong are quite severe potentially mm-hmm.
1: and also you know, I do I do wonder, because we've, we're have we not taking any COVID restrictions anymore. I mean, COVID hasn't gone away. Um, you know, the last variant that we had was relatively minor in most people, but not in everybody. And there are still people that are dying from it. We just don't hear about them so much anymore. So, it's, yeah. you know, it's not as if it's going away anytime fast.
0: I'm taking restrictions, Joe. I haven't been to see the mother-in-law in two years.
1: <laughs> Only oh, <laughs> well, kidding.
0: Uh, I'm going to see her next week.
1: <laughs> uh, the old ones are the best, hey? right so i don't think we've got time today to go through all the different types of disability discrimination that employees can bring but i think that we do need to let our um, listeners understand the duty that you've already referred to and that is to make reasonable adjustments for a member of staff that's got a disability so can you start glenn by telling our listeners what is a reasonable adjustment
0: yeah i mean it's something that enables an employee to, to continue to work or return to work. So it's something that has to alleviate the disadvantage that they suffer. Yeah. So it could relate to change in a process or a procedure. It might be a physical feature of the premises. It might be providing additional equipment. So for example, um, I, I've i got a chair at work that I, that I sit on which was helpful um, before I had my uh, hip operation. And It might be a phased return to work, allocating some duties to a colleague, changing of shift patterns so that people don't have to come in at the crack of dawn or whatever. Mm-hmm. Providing additional rest breaks is a good example. Moving people so they don't have to use the stairs or other areas that are tricky. But it, it has to be effective in helping to remove the dis- or reducing the disadvantage the Im- disabled employees face. And if they've got if the adjustment makes little or no impact, then it, it it's not it's not a reasonable adjustment. An alternative should be
1: considered. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. So can we look at some of the more difficult issues? And I'm not going to give you a quiz this this week. You'll be pleased to hear. I I am pleased.
0: I am pleased.
1: Let's look at sick pay, because often um, you have situations where individuals have been signed off sick, particularly if they've got sort of mental health conditions or anxiety. And what they say is, look, I've run out of my contractual sick pay. You're putting me onto SSP or I've run out of SSP and I've, I, you know, I'm not getting anything now. That's actually going to exacerbate my symptoms and make mm. it even more difficult for me to come back to work. Can you continue to pay me sick pay as a reasonable adjustment? So i got this right
0: on the quiz, Joe. So,
1: so there's a
0: case called uh, Meekong, which is quite famous. So. Um, and what, what, what the case law effectively says is that the adjustment has to help an employee get back to work, okay, not to make their life more comfortable whilst at home. So it's not an incentive for somebody to come back to work necessarily if they are being paid to be off work. Mm. okay. So there is very firm case law in relation to whether or not the, you have to continue paying sick pay okay, or contractual pay. As a result while somebody's on on sickness leave and the answer is is no the, the position changes potentially slightly if the employers caused the illness okay yeah. but as a general rule okay you don't need to pay somebody beyond your contractual sick pay entitlement
1: mm-hmm. thank you that's helpful what about adjusting sickness absence management processes and triggers is it reasonable to adjust those so that you know they the, don't
0: trigger immediately that is the normal reasonable adjustments that needs to be considered for, for most employers so if you apply a blanket policy of a you know three strikes and you get a warning type thing or yeah.
1: you know
0: a trigger point policy then and you apply it rigidly then you will get yourself into trouble vis-a-vis disability discrimination Okay, it's quite a complicated issue in my view, and because disabled people are more likely to trigger workplace policies about ill health absence than those without disabilities, but again, yeah. it comes down to reasonableness. So there is no definitive answer. For example, I I couldn't say to an employer, well, you have to adjust it by 10% or 20% or whatever. Okay, but but ultimately, and it's a judgment call. And quite often, the way I approach it with employers is to sit down with the employee and try to get a sense from them as to what they consider to be a reasonable adjustment in that regard Mm -hmm. okay so i mean clearly if they come up and say you've got to discount all absence then that's ridiculous but you know it, 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 it you've got to look at the effect it has on the employer's business okay and that will that will dictate as to how how um generous i suppose you are with that adjustment
1: yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Because I suppose, you know, you've got a situation, I mean, if you've got somebody that is likely to need further time off, so their condition, you know, hasn't improved, they're going to need to take time off from, you know, in the coming weeks or months, then if you discount a certain amount of time, it's not going to alleviate the disadvantage anyway, is it? Because at some point, they are going to have to go through that process.
0: Yeah, well, Look, I think it comes down to what's reasonable, really. So the way I always describe it to employers really is to look at the impact that the absence has on the employer versus the disadvantage to the employee of getting a warning or whatever or being potentially dismissed and effectively to scales. So if the if the needs of the employer outweigh the needs of the employee, then you might need to take
1: action. I think, actually, that's another thing that people find diff- difficult to understand is, that, is that the concept of warning somebody about their absences, because in many cases they can't do anything about that. And, you know, the question is, what purpose does the warning actually serve?
0: Well, it, it it puts people on notice that there might be further action. But really what it should do is it should prompt dialogue between employer and employee to see whether there's any further adjustments that can be made before more serious actions taken. So it should still, I know it's a warning, but it should still be done in a supportive environment as opposed to
1: a a punitive one. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. So let's finish by asking you to give employers three tips for dealing with long-term health. Where do you think they go wrong in particular?
0: People make different conclusions, in my view, regarding physical and mental impairments. Okay. So it's quite easy to spot people who are limping around, for example, as opposed to people who've got mental illness. So I think the treatment of the two is often um, treated quite differently by employers. Um, I think largely due to a lack of understanding. What else um, People think that there's always a, uh, the question we get asked quite a lot is, can I dismiss them now they've exhausted the sick pay? That's another common one. So there is no... Magic timescale by which you know you can say somebody's been off for this long, so therefore you can dismiss. If if, if it was that easy, then I'd probably be out of a job, quite frankly. And <laughs> um, but the other thing I think where people tend to go wrong is is writing ineffective letters to GPs and then being surprised when they don't really get the information back that they need to avoid the need of having to spend money on occupational health. Where if you ask the right questions and and are very specific about the questions you ask, with you know with specific outcomes in mind then I think you can progress matters through a properly and fairly through an absence management procedure so asking the wrong questions or asking the wrong person I think in the in the context of seeking medical advice I think is is the other big thing
1: that's really helpful that's really good thank you that's great so as I say no quiz today but um, I'll Find something really difficult and taxing for next time we talk.
0: Brilliant. Well, that's <laughs> it for today. If you want to hear more about the latest employment law updates alongside an expert commentary, tune in in a fortnight. Thanks for listening.
1: Thank you. Bye bye.